0: Good evening. Good evening. Well, we've had the chance to meet with half of you now in interviews, which is all this time we like in the retreat to get the one-on-one contact and hear how the retreat is lending for you and what's coming up. Helps so us see what's happening. So, I wanted to uh, touch on Karuna a little bit again. Uh, when we speak about the near enemies in the Brahmavihara's practice, and as a reminder, the near enemies in Karuna are, or can be anger, fear, grief, uh, or pity. Those, those also are, are normal reactions. So when we come in contact with suffering, when you experience suffering, uh, it's not uncommon to react in these ways. So, unfortunately, the classic Buddhist way to categorize is to call it the near enemy. And there's a way that, by categorizing it that way, or labeling it that way, unfortunately, you can... Uh, it ha- you have an opportunity to add more judgment. So, so so suffering is present, and you find yourself reacting with fear or anger, then it's... You,
1: Possibility
0: to say to yourself, oh, yes, you now I'm one of the near enemies. I'm doing it wrong. And then there's the judgment that's coming on top of that, you see. And then there's the suffering that comes with that judgment. So we're just beginning to spiral. So we, we want to clarify that, that the near enemies is just a category, and these are normal ways that we react to whatever it is we're taking, whatever... That's not our object, but... Um
2: our, res- our, our well, like the response to the suffering,
0: right? But in response to suffering, mm-hmm. that's what I'm saying. So, and also with the meds, the same thing. Where you're you're having a, having someone and trying to come in contact with their goodness. You might not at first meet their goodness. You might meet your judgments or something of that nature. So, all the way through this, just to realize having the, those responses come up is part of the practice you want to see what's coming up and you want to be with that also and allow yourself to uh, be present to those allow the compassion to come up uh, also with those responses and then as those settle the compassion will uh, be present without those egoic responses so it allows you to in effect purify those responses as well but we really wanted to clarify this because there was an opportunity to get another arrow of judgment, as the Buddha called it, get that second arrow of judgment. So the, the Karuna um, seems to be going well and people are, are um, able to uh, go through the sequence of beings to... Uh, be in contact with the suffering. Uh, but we wanted to hear from you a little bit like we did last night with Metta, uh, and see if there's a few people willing to comment or share what their experience is with the Karuna meditation today. Go As I'm saying these phrases and I'm
3: sharing different
4: people, it feels like I'm giving them blessings
0: do you say? as you're seeing these people and saying the phrases you feel like you're doing a little bit of a blessing yeah is that it?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah well I think I think with the with the traditional phrase here may this good person be freed from suffering that sounds an awful lot like a blessing but, but it's really the, there's the phrase is helping us stay in contact with the object which is the person and then um, are you able to, to establish or, or see their suffering
3: you know
0: I, I wonder if maybe it might be skillful to tone down the the phrase make it a little lighter and allow more room for their suffering to be as part of the, the contact
2: as well as your response to it I mean it with compassion because we are being with people who are suffering and it, it is kind of like we're um, you know, there's a wish that people can either have the strength to be with the suffering or to to be relieved of the suffering. So it, it, I can see how it might feel a little bit like a blessing. Um, you know, and and it's really about our the effect on us. So again, just to be clear, we're not. It's not like we're trying to do something that's. That We don't want to delude ourselves into thinking that now we're doing this and this is going to miraculously relieve their suffering. I mean, it would be wonderful if it was the case, and if there's some positive effect, that's wonderful. But that's not kind of – it's important not to think that that's what we're doing. You know, because that can then become where, oh, look at me, I'm not saying you're doing this, but that can kind of generate some pride or so- something that's not really what we're doing in the practice. So that would be the only thing, would be just to um, really be in contact with your sense of being in contact with their suffering and then your wish, you know, your genuine wish of compassion to be able to be with them in that. And also um either to have it be relieved or they have for them to have the strength to bear it.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I have two questions. I say that because I don't want to get the second one. Is the suffering that's referred to in this context, they get the sense that it's somewhat different than the existential suffering and the noble truths, so that these are sufferings of illness and, and, and specific uh, suffering uh, otherwise I find, I find that the the, um, the notion of compassion applied to suffering to be somewhat puzzling but does refer to the, the more existential suffering that goes on
0: So Martin's question is about suffering and whether the suffering that we're doing this practice might be different than a more existential suffering, which I'm assuming you're meaning the suffering of life, the right. movement towards mm-hmm. death, uh, fear of... A, of a or the suffering that from comes from clinging and attachment. Clinging right? and mm-hmm. attachment, mm-hmm. okay. And mm-hmm. as opposed to the suffering that might come from illness and death and right. a more, more struggling relationship. Like, and
1: More tangible, less existential. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What,
0: what's been your experience today in working with the...
1: Uh, well, through the first part of the day, I dealt with the, the, the more mundane suffering that comes from illness and uh, sorrow and sadness. And then uh, at some point in the day, uh, I realized that uh, I can also apply compassion to suffering that comes from mere existence and attachment. That is mm-hmm. hard because mm-hmm. it's harder to deal with. Uh, it's less tangible. It even it even makes it more abstract. Whereas the have compassion applied to grief, illness, and all that stuff is, is easier. It's more tangible.
0: So thing he found it in the morning. Uh, used the usual sufferings of illness and grief and struggle, and found that to be a place of greater contact. And if he went to the more existential suffering that that was a little more esoteric to grab a hold of and also meet with compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. the comments with me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of why we've been encouraging to in thinking in in really um, the beings that you include, whether it's yourself or others. Some specific kind of suffering makes it more concrete in a certain way. Um, And it's also true that all beings, just in the nature of the human experience, there is suffering, there's unsatisfactoriness. And so that is also true. And, And this is really one of the things that unites us with all beings, is that all beings will suffer as part of that experience of being embodied. Um, but it's but that's a little bit more abstract and a little bit um, I can see that that might be a little harder to kind of sink your teeth into. But it's but it is also valid, as
0: mm-hmm. you say. So, so, so as a practical matter, you certainly could use both kinds of suffering in in the practice. If you're finding the one suffering, the more existential suffering, to be a little more conceptual, more difficult to. Grab onto, let's say, that it might be more skillful right now to focus on the suffering, the everyday suffering that people are going to are going through, and allow. Just again, we're just being present to that and allowing compassion to arise from that. We're not generating or doing anything about compassion.
1: So, what I do is typically uh, in, uh, in a typical practice that the compassion that we're exercising here is not toward a more abstract moment of suffering.
0: So your comment Mm -hmm. is that you're hearing what we're saying is that the compassion is not being directed toward the more the abstract suffering. Mm -hmm. And we're actually Mm -hmm. saying that it absolutely can be. Mm -hmm. But as a practice, as a meditative practice, it may be easier to start with the specific structure of suffering, Mm -hmm. but absolutely this could develop and it could be the sensitivity could develop to a point the concentration could develop to a point that you could have as your object that more existential suffering of others and maybe all beings and compassion could arise to meet that and be present to it. So it's a skillfulness of kind of where your concentration is too. Is there
1: a second question? Yes, I mean, uh, the if, if you're applying it to yourself and you say, may this good person or may, may I be freed from suffering, uh, I experienced a conflict today between asking for that uh, and a, the approach to suffering I find to be effective, which is to soften rather than just accept. It. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering whether or not that's an artificial conflict I'm experiencing in your minds, or whether or not you yourselves find that the best way to be personally to be relieved of suffering, to have it abate, is one of acceptance rather than asking to be to be taken off your back, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: So his comment was. There was mm-hmm question was, um, is it, as he was going through the phrases, uh, and one of the options is, may I be free from suffering, mm-hmm. um, that you found that it's skillful to actually be in contact with the suffering and then to have some acceptance, right. rather than sort of right. uh, wishing for something or something exactly. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, I would say there's a couple ways to look at it. One is that really the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism um, offer us the possibility that through, our, uh, through the possibility of the right view of reality that we can actually be free of suffering through the path and through the potential for our view to change so that it's not dependent on circumstances whether we're suffering or not. Uh-huh. So in some ways, the the um, wish to be free of suffering is the same as the wish for liberation.
1: Uh-huh.
2: So, I mean, but, but you're asking about it more situationally. So right. I can see how there could be some conflict, uh, whereas... A lot of what we do in Buddhism is to meet things as they are, right. rather than reject circumstances. So in that way, I totally get what you're saying, and and the the um, statement of may I may I open to this, right. or may right. I may I accept, accept it? Something? Yeah, yeah, that might be more um, in the spirit of rather than sort of pushing right. away. So. I think, from that standpoint, probably one of the phrases about, you know, can I open to this, can I accept it, you know, use your own language, but can, may I be able to accept this um, pain, that seems more in the spirit of um,
0: of what we're talking about. But I just wanted to
2: sort of point out the other way of
0: interpreting
1: Acting. yeah
0: sure. I' make one little distinction and that is uh, it sounds to me like the approach you're taking to soften and accept is a life strategy and what I'd say is is maybe it's skillful during the retreat with meditation to not go to that strategy to allow the suffering to be present in its hard form and be present with it and see what happens
1: mm-hmm. I, I think I have been, and I think I find that it gets worse, and that when I accept it and, uh, and have a sense of resignation, then it evades. Okay.
2: Where have you been in contact with what really um, helps to be in contact with the compassion Rather than whether, like, cause I'm thinking about, like, in my case where I had physical pain that
3: mm-hmm.
2: it wasn't going to abate no matter what. Right. And, um, it was really only the compassion as well as, um, other parts of the spiritual practice and the support of those around me uh-huh. that allowed that to be, allowed me to endure that. But the compassion that arose was, it didn't abate. And so there was a way where that wasn't really an option, you know. And so I'm just wondering, like, the compassion ultimately can be something that can allow us to endure something that may not abate even. So I'm just wondering if there was anything that seems to be more um, uh, allow more contact with the compassion. Whether the, it's the accepting, or whether it's really being with the the difficulty in its raw form—any mm-hmm. sense of that?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I need to. I think I need to explore that tomorrow.
4: Okay.
0: And, and I just, a final thought would be that, that the softening you're experiencing—that might be the function of compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It might be worth noticing where's that coming from. Yeah. Is that something that you're actually doing it, or is it coming from someplace that you are not doing?
3: Thanks for the questions. Can
4: mm-hmm. Okay, say yes. so your name? Oh Tam, yeah, my name no, is Tam. And um I'm dealing with a big family issue this week with my brother, and um so I tried to offer compassion for him, but it was too difficult. And so yeah. I felt like the whole day I was, I was saying phrases that I, I couldn't connect at the heart level. Right. So I was wondering what a simple strategy would be to switch to. I tried a little bit of method and I tried compassion toward myself and compassion for my mother and
0: other people. Right. How did but that it work? It so dominant that, it, that I just kept
4: going back to my brother.
0: How, how did it work when you offered compassion to yourself and others?
4: Well, I spent the
0: whole day not feeling anything. Okay, just cut off from that whole side. Okay. So there must be a better strategy. Sure. Yeah, so, so your question is that, um, and, and we're sorry to hear that your brother is suffering. You were commenting that your brother's suffering right now, and you were wanting to offer him compassion, and met with yesterday, compassion today, and finding it difficult, it sounds like his circumstance is difficult, and that really compassion, it sounded like wasn't spontaneously arising to meet that. And so it was a lot of struggle for you, That's what I'm hearing. That sounds about right. And as we've said before, this is part of why normally we try to put family at the end of the list because <laughs> it, it is complicated, and it's complicated also because of our love. It isn't just complicated because we've grown up and there's been the sibling, you know, battles, but there's just our love is complicated, and multi-layered. So we, we don't have as much objectivity when when we're doing it because really what you probably want. I'm putting words in your mouth, but you probably want to cure him if he's ill or take away whatever the suffering is completely. Right? And and probably that's not possible is what I'm getting. Right. Right? Yeah. So so part of that, the compassion there probably is something around the acceptance of your situation, of his situation, that you're both suffering. And as Tina said about her health issue. it's not going to improve. There's not a a medicine, there's not an affirmation you can say that's going to cure it. So sometimes that is the acceptance, compassion is the only compassion available.
2: Yeah, and I I guess I would just wonder if other other things were arising, like we talked about earlier, sometimes fear or anger or frustration or, you know... uh, we don't. We haven't met with you, so I don't know. Ex- I mean, you wrote some things on your sheet, so we have, I, I have some memory of that. But um, there may be other things that are <coughs> arising that need some attending to. Well,
4: definitely yeah. here, because we can't control what right.
0: he himself. So yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 When, so when the al- present, just allow that to be here too. Right. If you have, if he's up because he's really suffering, and the fear is present, let the fear be present too. That's that's part of it, and they're suffering around fear as well.
4: So focus on metta.
0: Well, I think focus on if your brother is an inescapable object, then focus on your brother, and focus on whatever is arising in your field in your meditation. Just allowing it all. In other words and let metta arise, let karuna arise, let whatever's going to arise from your deeper nature arise, without an idea of what's the best thing to
5: Should come in that. to phrases?
0: No, you can do the phrases. I mean, that's fine if you want to do the, the phrases. You just find the right phrases. And But, but we're, again, we're not trying to produce uh, compassion or metta, or, or we're trying to let it arise. We're letting it arise from our deeper nature.
2: Yeah, and if fear is there, you know, if that's really what's present more, if that's sort of the the thing that keeps being present, then that's maybe the place to to be and to have some compassion for the fact that you're having so much fear. You know, I mean, if that's really what's at the forefront, you know, you kind of have to be where you are. And that's what we were trying to say earlier, and when Stephen did the introduction, is that a lot of times things are happening, or sometimes there are circumstances where um, somebody is at the effect of some things that someone else did, and there might be some justified sense of you know anger or resentment or whatever, and and to sort of overlay and sort of push all of this down, and to try and force some a sense of compassion or something else to come when there's actually something else there that's really present is it's not honoring ourselves and where we're really at
0: it isn't the truth yeah ultimately and that's the territory we have to work in is what's the truth of your your experience
2: yeah and when we honor where we're really at that is the most compassionate act we can really do for ourselves
0: Louise?
4: Yes. Um, I wonder if you could speak to something that came up a few times for me in um, with friend around compassion, someone who is um, at end of life. And the compassion was there, and then when I would say the word, like may um, you find peace, I, I sort of came up against the word. as if how do I know? know, I have well wishes and... Compassion is there, but I question saying words. Um, can, can you say something as, as if somehow I don't know what's best? Or, mm-hmm. uh, and these words, you know, be free of suffering, love, peace, and harmony. Uh, I'll use it. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So she's saying that she has a friend that she was doing the compassion practice for who said, in end of life situation, and uh, she wasn't tried saying may you find peace, but wasn't really sure. Didn't want to assume what the right thing was. And this is one of those places, maybe where, um, if none of the words really fit, that that more the the intention from your heart may be the best thing, because you may not know what really is the best thing for that person and if you really aren't sure and aren't comfortable with, if none of these really feel right, is it possible for you to have an intention that's more, um, that's more non-verbal? Do you think that would be possible? Yeah, so, so then go ahead and do that, and, and there's sort of, you're trusting that, um, and you're acknowledging that, that maybe you don't know what is really the best thing, and that, but you can still have this wish. And you can still feel the compassion for that person even without knowing exactly what the right thing is.
3: Yeah.
5: yeah I'm Angela. And I noticed, well, it started this morning before breakfast doing the loving kindness with the imaging that you had suggested last night, you know, and imagining people safe, happy, you know, smile on their face, healthy, like imagine them walking or jogging or outside in nature enjoying a healthy body and I found that not only was I feeling more met or more love kindness for them, I was also feeling empathetic joy from that experience. The imaging seemed a lot deeper than the words. And then similar with the compassion, imagining Someone, or just seeing them in that place of suffering versus the words went to a deeper place. Or like mm-hmm. witnessing you talking about Brian mm-hmm. and what you experienced, I felt it so much deeper mm-hmm. than saying the words.
2: Yeah, yeah, and this is where, you know, a lot of us are very visual and that can deepen our contact with whatever the situation is maybe more than words and so that's fine, you don't have to use the words, this is where like for us the, the words, for some people the words are great or maybe it's great to start and then over time we don't, they aren't so helpful anymore and for some people maybe the, the image is enough and you don't need the words so that's
0: great. If that works best for you, then you can just use that. We're, we really are, we really favor learning what works for you because we're all a little bit different and to see, to present this as one size fits all isn't actually true. That's why there's different phrases and why we, when we talk to you, we are trying to fine tune and figure out what's best for your practice, what's working. So this is where each of us is the, like I said, the wisdom mm-hmm. for our own practice to recognize those things and capitalize on them, so it sounds just right. Yeah. It was a, it was like an
5: moment because 'cause I've been doing the words for years. Mm-hmm. And then when I did the imaging it's like, oh there <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. So thank you for that. Yeah. You're welcome.
2: welcome. Mm-hmm. So shall we go on? Okay, so um, now I'm going to talk about Mudita. And again, use your own judgment for your practice as to whether you would like to continue on with the compassion or the metta, whatever you're doing, or go on. And you could go on tomorrow morning if you want. Uh, or you could use the morning session to do a final Karuna meditation. So use, use your own wisdom on that. So mudita is uh, empathetic joy. Sometimes it's also referred to as appreciative joy or sympathetic joy. We kind of like empathetic joy the best in terms of a, a translation. And it's really, uh, well, one of the interesting things about about this brahmavihara, Vihara, which is kind of surprising, but after we talk about it, it'll, it'll make more sense why, is that it's often considered the most difficult one is kind of interesting. So why would that be? Well, because it's empathetic joy, it's really the joy that we experience from someone else's happiness. So that's really what we're working with here. And and I'll talk some about what about our own happiness. And that's actually a practice around gratitude. So we'll have you experiment with with both of those. Um, so in this practice, we're really cultivating the capacity that when somebody else is having good fortune or things are going well for them, that we can feel joy in that rather than feeling envy or um, jealousy or those kinds of things. And that's really why this is considered to be, by some, the most difficult Brown viharas because those are... Those are the, the far enemy, but it's really common for them to come up, especially when we're working with some of the more difficult categories of beings. So we may not have time to get all the way to those categories, you know, in, in the time we have here. But um, but really the part of the beauty of developing this capacity is that it, it can cut through a lot of are <coughs> um, tendencies to have ideas about who should be getting what good things happening to them and you know sometimes we'll see especially in the media or something where somebody that maybe we think really doesn't deserve something is having all this good fortune and, and um, so there's a way where this practice enables or it's cultivating a capacity to have happiness in other people's happiness and to have that be something that becomes kind of contagious in a certain way so that we can share in that and, um, and be sort of open-hearted and open-handed in terms of really allowing people to have their happiness and to, to not be affected negatively by that. So, um, one of the things about mudita, just a few words about mudita and karuna. And it's often said that the two are kind of go hand in hand together. That karuna, so mudita is more uplifting, assuming that we, you know, have the ability to have contact with feeling that joy in other people's good fortune. But um, mudita kind of uplifts some of the heaviness of Karuna. So, you know, you've been all day working with suffering. And there's, you know, that's, it's a hard place to really be. So Mudita is really, we're looking at the joy in life and doing this practice, and especially when we, I'll talk about the gratitude practice, which we like to sort of add on to this. Um, but it's really looking at, at the good things that happen in life. And so there's a way where, in that way, Mudita balances out Karuna. And on the other hand, if we were only to look at the joy, there's a way that, that, um, that Mudita can be a little bit um, out of touch with the other side of life. You know, so the two kind of go hand in hand and balance each other out in a way that really, you know, when we get to Upaka equanimity, it's sort of rounding out the whole human experience. You know, we start with loving kindness, which is kind of the baseline goodwill for all beings. And then we look at the difficult situations, and then we look at the joyful situations, and then we look at equanimity, which is really having a sense, well, we'll talk about that later, but it's really developing the ability to have stability regardless of which of those is happening. So, um, so the proximate cause in this in mudita is someone else's good fortune or happiness. That's really the the object. And so, when we when we start with mudita, we start with um, with a friend, normally somebody who's easy to be happy for and who is having happiness in their life. That's the easiest place to start. Is somebody that we care about. That's having happiness in their life. And then we work through to benefactor, neutral person, difficult person, and then all beings. And again, we you know we don't have a lot of time, so just as with Mudita and Karuna, if you want to just pick one person or yourself, When I'll talk about the gratitude practice in a minute, that's fine. You don't have to go through all the categories. But if you do want to go through all the categories, this would be the sequence that you would do that in. So the near enemy then is, um, well, I'll go to the far enemy first because that's a little more obvious. And this is really envy or jealousy. And we're such a culture of comparing and... Competition and all of these things—that um, it's very common in doing this practice to have envy and jealousy come up. So, just as with the other practices, if if these feelings come up don't have judgment about it. I mean, and now I'm telling you don't have judgment, so then if you have judgment, you might have judgment about that. So, so please don't, don't, just, oh, if it sorry.
3: happens, just be gentle
2: with yourself, you know?
5: You all of this. Of suffering yeah.
2: yeah, That's a lot of errors. So, anyway, but if, if they come up, just be gentle with yourself and know that this is, a, this is all part of the practice. It's natural and... and It's just one more thing to be in touch with. Um, But it is quite common. So that's the far enemy. The near enemy is um, comparing or sort of trying to force ourselves to really have good wishes for the person even when it's not there or, um, or even sort of grasping onto mudita In such a way that we get lopsided and and sort of lose touch with the fact that suffering is also part of our experience. That can be another um, thing that happens. So, this is a little different than maybe how you've heard working with this practice before, but when we do, um, when we are the one having good fortune or happiness. The practice is actually a gratitude practice, so the word mudita doesn't really sort of translate. But we would like to offer the possibility that with this practice, because it is considered to be one of, maybe even the most difficult, brahmavihara, that there can be a skillfulness to starting off with this practice, with actually doing um, having some period of gratitude where we're actually doing gratitude for the good things in our own life. And this is a little bit like um, starting with metta for ourselves. You know how when we first started talking about metta, the idea that doing metta for ourselves allows for us to kind of, um, there's a fullness that we're coming from. And so starting with gratitude practice for the the areas in our life you know the things that we're grateful for is a way of orienting toward this practice where we're coming from a sense of fullness and I'll just tell you that like Stephen and I when we, ha- every meal that we have, so breakfast, lunch and dinner we, before we eat and and we don't, well we do it here actually upstairs but even at restaurants we will um, just silently have, close our eyes and inwardly uh have a sense of both gratitude and compassion. So if there's somebody in our life who's, who's suffering, we will just take a few moments, or for ourselves, to have compassion for that and for that person. And we also will inwardly just feel into um, our own gratitude. And to do that three times a day is... It really is, um, and literally we're talking about like a minute or less, you know. It's it's a really, um, we really, we've been doing this for years, and it's a really beautiful way to just touch in throughout the day for both of these two aspects of the human condition. So uh, let's see, I've got a couple of nice quotes here on gratitude. Um, one of them I found this on the internet, and, and most of the sites attributed this to the Buddha, but there was one site that said it wasn't a Buddha, but we thought we'd share it anyway, because we liked it.
0: With, so with that caveat. With
2: the caveat, yeah. just in case you think it doesn't sound like the Buddha, because there are two words in here that don't sound like the Buddha.
0: Well, it's just the word dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said, "Does it say, dude?" <laughs> I mean, we're not, we're not sure the the poly is for dude
2: <laughs> Okay, you can figure out what the words are. Let us let us rise up and be thankful. It is a little hard to picture the Buddha saying "rise up," but maybe that's a bad translation. But you know, you can substitute. Let us rise up and be thankful. For if we didn't learn a lot today, at least we learned a little. And if we didn't learn a little, at least we didn't get sick. And if we got sick, at least we didn't die. So let us all be thankful. Mm -hmm. So that kind of does sound like the Buddha, actually, to me. (laughs) But I mean, what he's pointing to here is that no matter how bad our situation is, probably we can find something to be thankful for. And like I can tell you, in, in going back to this um, health situation I had where, you know, it was really kind of strange because when it was happening, if I went for five minutes where I wasn't in pain out of a whole day, out of 24 hours, I was so grateful. I had so much gratitude. And I realized after this has gone on for, you know, weeks that I actually was experiencing, in some ways, a lot more gratitude than I normally did even though I was having this awful situation happening. And it was really kind of baffling to me that, that um, somehow, because I was suffering so much, I actually was more aware of the things that I was grateful for. Like, I never knew as I started getting better. I never knew that when I woke up in the morning, because, of course, you know, I was only sleeping one hour a night for, like, a month or two months – But I would wake up in the morning, and the first thing I would notice when I woke up was that I wasn't in excruciating pain. And I would turn to Steve and say, I didn't know that was something, before this happened, I didn't know I should be grateful every morning that I wasn't waking up in excruciating pain. But I thought about, you know, how many people around the world are waking up that way? You know, and I never really appreciated that before, that I was so lucky that that wasn't my experience or other things that people are experiencing. So, you know, there's a way where, I think this is what the Buddha's really pointing to, is that there, even if we're in a hard place, there probably is something to be grateful for. That's really, I think, what he's saying. So this is, there isn't like an official Buddhist practice around gratitude. So. One way to consider this is to just, you know, if you're going to take this on as like the first five minutes, if you're going to do mudita for others, or if you want to actually do like a whole sitting, or you could even do a whole day on gratitude. I I don't think it's something we can overdo. Um, To just really feel into your own sense of what you're grateful for. And this could be external things, it could be internal things, it could be something as um, simple as, like in Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about the precious human birth and how, you know, in Buddhism there are six different realms of existence. And the human realm, even though we do have suffering, we have the suffering of the hell realms. We also have the joy of the Deva realms. All of the, we have such a huge range of experiences possible. And because of this, we're actually motivated to awaken. Whereas like in the Deva realms, you know, you may not believe in these things, but let's imagine that we had a life where there was very little suffering. Would there be the motivation for liberation? Would we even have spiritual practice? You know, so there's a way where the human birth is very precious because we have enough potential to not suffer that we can actually practice. And, you know, all of us sitting here right now have amazing good karma. The fact that we aren't in a war zone, the fact that we aren't being tortured, the fact that we are physically able bodied enough to be here, that we have the money to be here that we have the time to be here. I mean, there's a whole lot of people on the planet that we even have the inclination to be here. You know, how many millions, billions of people don't have that? So, you know, there's a whole range of what we can be grateful for. And um, and just feeling into that, there can be a sense of Gratitude that is just like the other vihars. It really is kind of something that spontaneously comes from the heart, and and like to me, there's a fullness that comes from that. It's like, wow, I am so fortunate, you know. So this is really what the gratitude practice looks like. And I, I have one more quote that um, well, I have two more, but I'll just use this one for now. this is from Meister Eckhart who was a well-known Christian mystic and he says, if the only prayer you say in your entire life is thank you that would suffice Mm -hmm. so this is really what we're pointing to with the the Mudita practice and um, we invite you, if this feels like something you want to go on to, to uh, engage with us tomorrow. And then, if you want to start with yourself and the gratitude, then if you move on, you would move on to a friend that is experiencing happiness and to just, you know, feel happy for that person. So, and do
0: you, you want to go on to the. Uh, no, comments? I, I just mentioned a little bit about Mudita. A okay. couple comments. And, and To to me, the the mudita, there's there's also a simplicity to it. And by that, I mean that you've all experienced mudita. If you've had uh, a pet, if you've had, when you were madly in love with someone, if you had a, a parent or a child or a grandchild that you just had that sweet love for, and they just did the cutest thing. <laughs> and, and and you're just like, oh, <laughs> you know, look what they did. <laughs> it's, just, it's just amazing. And and we we have that we have a granddaughter who's mm-hmm. almost two, and she is the most verbal child I've ever met. I think she knows more words than I do. <laughs> and she's turning two next month. And her mother asked her, "You're one, and you're turning two next month." is there anything that you want to do while you're still one before you turn two? And she thought about it, and she said, march and walk on my (laughs) tiptoes. And I said to Tina, how do you not have mudita for (laughs) that? I mean, I mean, was time you heard anybody say, I need to walk on my tiptoes. Because
2: she can't do that when she's two.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, grown I mean well well up to do get that. A, she's yeah. got to get a job and get partnered. and you know, there's, there's stuff to do.
3: Or or like
2: yesterday, um, they they have cats here now. I don't know if anyone's seen them. But, oh my gosh, I just love animals. So I was in there, and at one point, the one cat came up and sat on my lap, and then and then there was a second cat, you know, and then they, there wasn't enough room on my lap, and so they were both, like, trying to get on me, and they were purring, <laughs> and, and they were so happy, and it was just like, well, of course, I was pretty happy, too. <laughs> but, you know, you just see, or like, if you have a dog, and you see them, like, rolling on their backs in the grass, and they just, it's just so much joy. That um, it's hard not to feel mudita in seeing other beings like that and their happiness. So, so this is the, really the spirit of, of what it is.
0: And the point is, you 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 do know it. Yeah. Just sometimes yeah. it's a little difficult, a little elusive to to get a hold of meditatively. So that might help. So, any questions on mudita?
3: Is yeah. there a question on mm-hmm. the? Uh, um, the
4: pleasant
2: yeah yeah so this is where like it's really getting lopsided in um, sort of clinging to the pleasant parts of life in an unbalanced way where we're not we're sort of not in touch with the parts that aren't as pleasant you know so it's more sort of pushing away uh, that balance of really kind of getting to where we're, we're trying to create that and, and go. It's more like leaning towards the desire side of things where now it's just becoming a hindrance because we're trying to always be in a place of, of yeah.
4: yeah. And, and to relate that to somebody else? Or
2: is that related to yourself? Well, I guess related to others. I think really what it's pointing to is just being out of balance with the fact that there is suffering, and you know there could be a way where we're sort of like this heat-seeking missile, always looking for the 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 mudita, and can I sort of get a high off of this Mm -hmm. person or? You know, I mean, the great thing about Mudita is that when we're really in touch with it, we can feel a lot of joy just being in contact with other people's joy. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah.
0: One one of the ways I I look at that phrase, the grasping for the pleasant, and maybe I've not interpreted it correctly, but I've assumed that that was pointing to people faking it. So they're they're putting on kind of a fake pleasantness. of, Oh, how nice it is that you got that. Yeah, it's that kind mm-hmm. of phoniness. Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of how I always nice. interpret it, it's as the, because it's mm-hmm. kind of like you're you're trying to have the mudita, but it's not really there. So there's sort of a social mm-hmm. mudita you're putting on. You're just, too busy, yeah, you're envious maybe, and you just sure. don't want to show it. It's, there's a judgment about it. So anyway, just as a food, mm-hmm. food for thought.
3: Thank you.
2: Yeah, and there's, you know, some a few sample phrases there, but again, you can customize it to, to something that means is meaningful to you as well. Any other questions about Medita? Or about the gratitude practice? Can
4: I ask a question about Korea?
3: Mm-hmm. Sure. sure,
4: sure. Um, the, under the near enemy I feel a lot of compassion for people that are grieving or are at their end of life or have just lost somebody so I'm
3: not quite sure how to
0: it's a good question the Mm question is about the near enemy It mentions grief as one of the near enemies and, and she actually works in hospice work so it would be times, and, and, and I think what it's pointing to, or, or the way I would interpret that, is it, it's the the people that collapse into grief. So, in other words, when they meet somebody else's suffering, they become kind of a basket case. That kind of grief. So that's so the grief where, if you're suffering and I'm in contact with your suffering, and I, I feel <coughs> grief for your suffering, but I'm not collapsing in response to it. So I'm not actually able to be in contact with compassion. You see? So maybe we can talk about the griefs as being a little bit different, different quality griefs. And one is where I'm in my own strength and the other is where I'm not. Mm-hmm. And because if I'm here in my strength and I'm feeling, I I'm, I'm like we talked about Brian, going to Brian's you know bedside where they took him off life support and And we were grieving, there's no question. At times we couldn't, either one of us could speak and things. Mm -hmm. But we were still present. We didn't collapse and not be there. We were there and we were fully in our grief when that was happening. Mm -hmm. And when it wasn't, we were conducting the ceremony or whatever. So it's, you know, perhaps it's authentic versus artificial grief. I don't know. Do you see the distinction?
4: Yes, and no. I mean, because I also know people that... Have collapsed into their grief because they're so consumed by it, Mm -hmm. and to me that seems authentic. Mm -hmm. Versus somebody who (laughs) doesn't have good boundaries and is sort of sucked into
0: somebody else's. That's more what I'm referring to. Is the people. Right. Yeah,
2: we're, we're trying to stay true to what yeah. is actually in the teachings, and this is, I was trying to sort of point at this when I told the story about Brian, because of course we both were feeling grief and, and some fear about, like, what would it be like to go there and do you need to do all these things just I mean and literally weeks before we were with Brian here as you know Make, you making know plans, making plans, plans for the next X number of plans. years and yeah. yeah so um yeah to me I guess what I would say because there's a way like just with my personality type I can be a little bit on the histrionic side and um so where I'm sort of burning off a lot of feeling, but I may not actually be feeling it as much as I could if I was, if it was really going more deeply within me, if I was really being more present mm-hmm. to it. I don't know if this is making sense. But there's a way where, um, it, like in the case with Brian, I, and, you know, especially when there's a loss like a death, Grief is a natural response. So so this shouldn't be taken to mean that it's there's something wrong with experiencing yeah, grief that. Grief is always wrong. Yeah. yeah. So so, so, so that so you know, I doubt the Buddha would have meant that. Um but, but but, we certainly
0: don't mean yeah, that. Yeah, we don't we don't mean that.
2: But it, there's a way where um, like really feeling that sense of sorrow and loss for me allowed it to really go a lot deeper than if I kind of am just spinning around in my head with grief. Does that make sense? So to me that's, I think what this is pointing to more is there's something that can deepen that is is more profound in a certain way Mm -hmm. and that compassion... Is there, can be a response to that, that is, um, in some ways, allows for more capacity to be with the suffering.
0: You know, I'd, I'd say one other distinction is I know when we were with Brian, that what I what I saw with Tina and I was it really we weren't in a head grief, we weren't with the idea and the concepts of grief. It really was resting in our hearts in a way that, as Tina said. I mean, sorrow was really arising in a way that there was a depth to the grief and the sorrow that really was of, of the... It was really, I would say, a quality of true nature. It had that non-produced quality to it. We were talking about this afterwards, mm-hmm. that there just there was something that... So, so I think there's a number of ways we could make distinctions here. Uh, but, but I think overall, the idea that grief is always that... Definitely is not the message.
4: Um, yeah. I have a sister who uh, um, is sort of attached to her grief and defines yes. herself like grief. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. might be another, like a flag hearing of grief. You know, there's grief, a death, loved one, you know, and then there's like, this will haunt me the
3: rest of my every, you know. We can still miss people, but then there's the, you know.
2: Right. Yeah, there's, yeah. like, if it becomes an identity, right? then that is where, like, the ego's now taking it. And it's becoming something that is kind of a distortion of what a natural grief would be. Does that, is that kind of make sense? I mean, I totally... Yeah, we are talking So,
0: so this take on the koan, what is grief? <laughs> 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for the question. Anybody
2: else? Okay, well maybe I'll close with the final quote sure. from from Albert Einstein. I'm mixing it up a little bit Yeah. <laughs> And this is about gratitude also. There are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle.